Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. This episode features the music from the 1983 classic Return of the Jedi. And here's your host, Jeff Cummings. I was nine years old when Return of the Jedi was released in 1983, and it's the earliest memory I have of going to the movies. My older brother took me along, probably because he was my babysitter that day, or because I really wanted to see this movie. We had watched the first two installments of the Star Wars saga on my brother's worn-out VHS tapes, and it was amazing to see and hear this new story unfold on the big screen. I recall asking my brother if Ewoks were real, and if so, where can we go to see one of them? I also remember the revelation that Luke and Leia were siblings, and I wondered what it would be like to have a sister. But the bigger impact the film had on me was long after that day in the theater. My brother completed his vinyl album collection of the Star Wars trilogy with the LP of Return of the Jedi, and he played it almost every day. John Williams' score to Return of the Jedi closes the circle well on the original trilogy, and for the purposes of nostalgia, I'm only going to refer to the original 1983 version in this episode. This was the third act in a very long opera, and was the first film franchise to specifically have an ending, at least at the time. Others, like the James Bond series and Planet of the Apes, or even the Pink Panther series, created almost standalone stories for each new film. Though George Lucas successfully wagered that his sequel to Star Wars would be successful if things turned dark, he kind of went back to the old formula for Return of the Jedi. He created another Death Star, which also needed to be blown up from the inside, and he took us back to Tatooine. Questions needed to be answered from The Empire Strikes Back, and in order to confirm Vader's statement that he is Luke's father, we went back to Dagobah as Yoda uttered those heart-wrenching words, Your father he is. And Lucas added new questions, specifically about that brother-sister thing between Luke and Leia. Putting all of these storylines into a cohesive and exciting script was very difficult for George Lucas. I read an online biography that claimed Lucas didn't have the final pieces of the puzzle set for co-screenwriter Lawrence Kasdan until a week before shooting began in January 1982. But once the script was ready, filming was a breeze under new director Richard Marquand. A five-month shoot on a major blockbuster was pretty good at the time, and the production managed to stay under budget. But the visual effects team threw things into disarray. Effect shots were taking much longer than expected, even though about 95% of it was being done in one location at the Lucas-owned Industrial Light and Magic. And as was the case on previous effects-laden films, and will be the case for the next 35 years, John Williams' work seemingly suffered from not being able to see the visuals for which he was writing music. As soon as he finished work on Monsignor in August 1982, Williams originally did not have to return to the conductor's podium for Return of the Jedi until the end of February 1983. But for reasons that I have not been able to discover, Williams was told that the score needed to be recorded by the end of February, meaning a much shorter window for composition than planned. There was no official screening of the film for Williams because large sections of the films were not yet completed by the end of summer 1982. 
So Williams got about 30 minutes of film to watch every month, beginning in September, all the way up to Christmas time. It's amazing that Williams was able to create a new tapestry for Return of the Jedi, given the circumstances. The film does bring back the heroic flavor of 1977 Star Wars, but with a lot of new musical material. The film still relies on the Star Wars leitmotif formula, but when you finish watching the movie or listening to the soundtrack album, you might not feel as complete as you did with the previous two films. Unlike Star Wars and The Empire Strikes Back, there is no major new theme that enjoyed a life of its own outside the film. With Star Wars, you had the main theme, or Luke's theme, as it were, and in The Empire Strikes Back, it was the Imperial March. Play those two themes for a casual moviegoer, and they will most likely identify them right away. But if you were to play any of the four new themes from Return of the Jedi, do you think they would recognize any of them immediately? Probably not. But that's not to say that the themes Williams wrote for Jedi are not up to his standards. I think the film's plot is so fragmented that it's hard to anchor the film with one theme. It feels like so many characters run through this film that John Williams was having a hard time just keeping up. But possibly the one bright aspect of Williams' time on Return of the Jedi was working with his son, Joseph. Joseph was just 21 years old when he was approached to provide some lyrics for songs to be played in the film. One of them was to be performed by members of Jabba the Hutt's house band, and the other was to play over the final celebration. Joseph had just released a self-titled album of nine songs in 1982, and indications are it didn't do very well on the Billboard charts. So a little Hollywood money would help keep his music career going until fate would lead him to the band Toto in 1986. As for the songs, Joseph supplied lyrics in English for the melodies his father composed. The first one, for the pop rock song performed during a party at Jabba's Palace, took Joseph's lyrics and translated them into Hatiz to fit the setting. The second song was to play during the celebration in the Ewok village after the destruction of the Death Star. Sound editor Ben Burt, who had created the Ewok language for the film, wrote lyrics in the Ewok tongue for the first part of the song before it segues almost seamlessly into Joseph Williams's English lyrics. Love, 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 love
planned for this discussion of the collaboration between John Williams and Joseph Williams to be much longer. I spent about three weeks trying to get an interview with Joseph Williams for this episode, but that interview request was denied. There was so much I wanted to know because there's not a lot of information out there, such as what it was like to collaborate with his dad and if he knew his lyrics were going to be translated. Because I haven't been able to find the full English translations of both songs, I was hoping this would be the place that we would hear once and for all the English lyrics for those songs. It is interesting that I could only find one article in which Joseph Williams talks about his work on Return of the Jedi, and in that article he pretty much just confirms that he wrote two songs for the film. I found about 20 or more articles and two radio interviews, and all of them focused on either singing with the band, Toto, or singing as adult Simba in The Lion King. It makes you wonder if his work on Return of the Jedi was a pleasant one and might explain his decline to be interviewed for this podcast. I'm sure it put a bad taste in his mouth when George Lucas decided for the 1997 re-edit to drop both of the songs on which he worked for other options. But probably not too much of a bad taste because Joseph Williams was asked to help orchestrate the music for the parade at the end of The Phantom Menace. Outside of the collaboration with his son, John Williams had a lot of work to do for Return of the Jedi. It turned out to be his longest score ever at that point, a full two hours of music for a movie that runs two hours and 12 minutes. In those two hours are reprisals of pretty much all the major themes we know from the previous two films, as well as four new themes. All four of the new themes for Return of the Jedi have completely different styles, tones, and sounds but they do share one thing in common, the perfect fifth. If you haven't listened to previous episodes, you don't know how much I adore Williams' use of the perfect fifth in his compositions. As a reminder, the perfect fifth is a shift of five notes on the musical scale from the original note to the end note. It provides a lift to the music and generally promotes heroism, purity, and, well, perfection. The new theme that fascinates me most is the theme for the Ewoks, the furry forest creatures who helped turn the tide in the final battle on Endor. What I really enjoy about the theme is the instrumentation. In the film, the Ewok theme is almost always played on woodwind instruments, flutes, piccolos, clarinets. And in some places, it sounds like the instruments, including the percussion, were made from the trees that filled the Endor moon's landscape. For many years, I thought the Ewok theme had some familiarity to it, like it was a variation on something Williams had already composed. But I didn't have the musical knowledge that I have now, though some of you will claim that I still have no musical knowledge. So I'll play that theme for you again, this time by the brass section. You're probably flipping through your Star Wars themes Rolodex to find music that is familiar to that. 
Well, I'll give you the answer now. Here's the theme that might be considered an older sibling or maybe a first cousin to the Ewok theme. Both the Rebel Fanfare and the Ewok theme share a similar structure. They both repeat a short statement twice before their jump up a perfect fifth to their heroic conclusion. I think Williams recognized that since the Ewoks essentially became an offshoot of the Rebellion, their theme should have some kind of connection to the original Rebel Fanfare. The other new theme that gets a lot of play in Return of the Jedi is the music for The Emperor. He was casually mentioned in Star Wars and we saw him in one scene in The Empire Strikes Back but he is all over this movie as the top villain. So John Williams had to figure out music that was more evil than Vader's theme. And when you think of pure evil, you have to go low, very low. That's pretty evil, and by no accident, of course. You remember the discussion I had in the episode for The Empire Strikes Back when Jim Nova brought up the Vader chord progression as, quote, the horror chord, which is created when you add the A note to a chord. The Emperor's theme is composed in G minor, but it frequently travels to B flat, which is also A sharp. It starts at G then goes to A-sharp, then back to G. The next phrase starts at A-sharp, then goes back to the original G, before dropping to F. It will do it in the final phrase before leaping up to D and finishing it off. And I just played for you the perfect fifth in the Emperor's theme, from the G to the D. Listen to it as played by the bass woodwinds. This is what we hear when the Emperor descends from his ship. Adding in the male chorus is another great choice. It's the first time we've gotten a choir in the Star Wars series. And there aren't many instruments that can go as low as the male bass's voice. So like I said, when you need to go low, go low as possible. 
The theme for Jabba the Hutt is so insignificant in the film that it hardly bears mention. I'll give it a little play here, though. It's fun, and melodically, it suggests very little movement, even with that perfect fifth leap in early in the theme. You might notice that the theme ends in pretty much the same place it started. Very fitting, since Jabba probably hasn't moved from his perch in his palace in many years. So, I have some questions about the theme that portrays the newly discovered relationship between Luke and Leia. I've read on a couple of online fan forums that the melody blends notes from Luke's theme and Leia's theme, but I have a hard time detecting that. What do you think? It makes sense that Williams would construct the theme this way, if it's true. Why construct a new melody about established characters? I am inclined to believe those who say it's a variation on established themes. It's very beautiful music, as pure as these two were when the series started. Notice that in the middle of the first rendition of this theme in the film, Williams puts in the Force theme, and it is seamless. Now that I've talked about all the new thematic material in Return of the Jedi and how Williams continued to expand his talents for this presumed finale, there's really nothing else to talk about for this episode, right? I'm just kidding. There's plenty more to discuss. I want to bring your attention to the main title music. As I said in The Empire Strikes Back, Williams would reconfigure the opening music for all three original trilogy films. In Star Wars, the music was heroic. In Empire... The opening music had a military beat. And in Jedi, it was all about Luke's mission to bring the Jedi back into prominence. That's emphasized with part of Luke's theme played on the solo trumpet by the awesome Maurice Murphy, used to convey that Luke is on his own now. Though you'll hear the other trumpets come in and out, like Yoda and Obi-Wan will do in the film.
Notice how the trumpet weaves through the middle part more prominently than it did in the previous two films. London Symphony Orchestra sounds a little disjointed in the second performance of Luke's theme, and I could only imagine that was intentional. I think the 20 minutes or so that we spend on Tatooine are pretty good, but you could tell that Luke's confrontation with Jabba and the fight with the Rancor that followed faced some heavy final edits. You could hear weird cuts in the music as it's heard in the film, suggesting that parts of the Rancor fight were cut out for time or just dragged on too long. And then we get to the moment that everyone in the theater really needed. For those watching for the first time, it would seem like our heroes, especially Luke and Han, who are on screen together for the first time since the very beginning of The Empire Strikes Back, are going to die in the Sarlacc pit at Jabba's instruction. Let's play the opening 80 seconds of music Williams originally wrote for this scene, which has our heroes staging a surprise attack on Jabba the Hutt and his henchmen. Yeah, that sounds okay, but you're probably thinking what George Lucas thought when he watched the scene with this music added in. It just wasn't thrilling enough. What's surprising about it is there is absolutely no thematic material, save for a bit of Luke's theme and a sliver of the rebel fanfare in a couple of places. So Williams was asked to take some time and remake music for the Salak Pit scene, and boy did he deliver.
the scene as a whole gives us that release that we've been waiting for since the Rebels were forced to retreat from Hoth way back at the beginning of Empire Strikes Back. Finally, Luke and the gang score a victory, though I have to say it was very un-Jedi of Luke to blow up Jabba's ship. I'm in love with the musical accompaniment to Luke and Vader's final duel. As it should be, the moment transcends the entire series. Father against son, good versus evil. And this is where John Williams' choice to use the London voices for this film really paid off. But it starts low, down where the Emperor's theme lives, and where Vader is trying to get Luke to turn to the dark side. Contrabassoons, organ, and synthesizers are along for the ride. The timpani hit you will hear comes when Vader realizes Luke has a sister. It's interesting that he doesn't say, so I also have a daughter. The strings and a few horns come in to set up what I best describe as epic religiosity. Instead of scoring the lightsaber fight as a big action piece with the brass section taking the lead, 
Williams feels the inherent sorrowfulness as Luke succumbs to the dark side, briefly. Let's listen to this operatic 90-second piece, and then we'll dissect it into its parts. and emotional. And it's just the string section and male voices, with a little bit of the horn section way deep down there. Now there are three musical statements made in this piece, and I don't know if any of you share my analysis here, but I'm convinced that I am right. Here's the first statement. Okay, so the notes aren't played in the proper order, but that right there is Luke's theme. You heard that descending triplet, right? I think Williams took the rest of that theme and scrambled it up to show us how messed up Luke's mind is at the moment. I think he'll figure out the next statement right away. This is the first six notes of Vader's theme, played in its original form. Of course, Vader's mind is clear, so musically his theme isn't jumbled up. Now the third musical statement trips me up a bit. This might not be thematic material, but just music to color in the lines until Luke cuts off Vader's hand. I'll play the entire 45 seconds again, and now I hope you'll make the musical connections. After Vader loses his hand, again, the Emperor's theme signals victory for the dark side.
Not so fast, Emperor. Luke isn't turning. As the Emperor decides to kill Luke with lightning bolts, Vader hears his son's pleas. Williams is scoring the scene as it plays out, instead of scoring what is going on in Vader's mind. At least for now. The Emperor's theme rises up to the high octaves as he almost gets his victory. His choir is almost in a cheerful mood too. The choice to play the Force theme here and not Vader's theme was perfect. Vader has turned away from his master and we needed to hear the Force theme to give Vader the emotional power to lift the Emperor and toss him down the chasm. But this is just a taste of what's to come. Vader is dying and he finally gets to reconcile with Luke. It's only right that Williams would score the death scene with Vader's theme. And just like he has done many times in the past, Williams takes a theme that meant one thing and makes us feel entirely different by orchestrating it in a new way.
First the strings, then the flutes, then the French horn, and finally the harp. Perfect. For all the mess that the last-minute editing created for the score, Williams was the undeniable glue that held Return of the Jedi together. It's no surprise that he remains the one person who worked on all nine of the Star Wars films because there's no replacing his contribution. Of course, Williams got an Oscar nomination for Jedi. For many years, I was upset that Bill Conti's score for The Right Stuff received the original score Oscar. My anger was very biased since I had never seen The Right Stuff and knew nothing about the music. I finally sat down to watch The Right Stuff in 2001, I think, and I hesitantly agreed with the Oscar choice. But I still believe that Williams should have received the Oscar for no other reason than to be rewarded for his work across all three films. Those who vote for the Grammys apparently were getting tired of checking off John Williams on their ballots, and the maestro's six-year winning streak came to an end when he lost the Best Soundtrack Album Award to the very popular Flashdance soundtrack. Yeah, that was probably bound to happen. And after his work was officially done on Return of the Jedi, John Williams returned to his post with the Boston Pops, where he premiered his Esplanade Overture. You'll remember in the Monsignor episode that Williams planned to debut that piece in summer 1982, but the time crunch meant it couldn't be completed. Parts of the overture made its way into Williams' score for Monsignor, and he took the spring of 1983 to fill in the holes in his composition before the Boston Pops could play the official composition in May 1983. And once his summer job was done, he was ready to return to the Indiana Jones saga for the second film in that series. I'm going to talk about Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom on the next episode with someone who will defend the merits of the film and try to erase all the negativity surrounding the score in the film. I'm looking forward to Cinematic Sound Radio's Eric Woods joining me next time to discuss this score. And please, be sure to write a review of this podcast on iTunes. Positive reviews help the show jump up in the rankings, and exposure is everything. And as always, you can write to me at jeffswim at aol.com and follow me at jeffswim on Twitter. Thanks for tuning in today, and until next time, the baton is down.